This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's episode is a real treat as I catch up with a conductor, musical director, pianist, composer, lyricist, arranger, and orchestrator. This musical jack-of-all-trades has had frequent collaborations with the Boston Pops, worked as an associate conductor on many Broadway shows, including The Drowsy Chaperone, The Phantom of the Opera, and On the 20th Century. He has served as a musical director on the national tours of such shows as The Producers, Les Miserables, Anastasia, South Pacific, Cats, and Sunset Boulevard. He is also the composer and co-lyricist of the musical Grounded for Life. Coming up is the musical equivalent of a Swiss Army knife, Larry Goldberg. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. La, 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 Great to be here, Pat. Been waiting for this. First of all, I can't take credit for all the lyrics for Grounded for Life because you are the other half of that, as, as you well know. I would love to start with the how you convinced me to write a musical, because I went about my business writing plays and doing stand-up comedy, and because I was friends of you and your wife, Alice, every time I would come to New York, we would have a dinner, and you would say these words, hey, we should write a musical together. And you did that for five straight years. <laughs> I didn't remember doing it quite so long, but you were tough to convince, I guess. Well, no. Do you remember what you said the sixth year? Well, you've told me that I said, do you have any stories that need musicalizing? Right. Does it, do you have a play that needs to be musicalized? And I heard that entirely different. I heard that like, I'm Tom Sawyer and you're going to paint the fence. I didn't think I was going to have anything to do with the musical part of it. Yeah, little did you know. Well, I learned a lot. And I, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted you here today, too, was I got an education on musical, the architecture of musical. Uh, there were times that I was driving in New York and you gave me some CDs to listen to of unusual musicals and things that now I've come to love. You know, Once on this Island was one of the CDs I remember you giving me. And not too long ago, we had uh, Lynn and Steven on that had did all the composing and lyrics for that. There was also one about the brain. What was the title of that one? A New Brain by William Finn. Yeah, that's a quirky musical, one of my favorites. Yeah, The New Brain. And I remember driving along going, okay, I'm starting to get that musicals have slightly different rules. So maybe you could start from that standpoint. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between the book and the music is. Yeah, uh, well, that's a huge thing to talk about. But um, there are two types of people in the world, those who get musicals and those who hate musicals and the people who hate musicals hate them because they're they're looking at them way too literally they're they're complaining that people in real life don't sing break out into song at any you know at a moment's notice but what they're missing is that the element of singing in a musical is a direct expressway into a character's soul and if you can somehow forget the, that it's bothering you that people are singing and just let it come, you can flip into that other world. If a musical is doing its job and you're in the theater seeing a musical, you, you don't want it to end. You want to be in that world. Even if the characters are hateful, there's just something about being in that environment that you feel drawn to. I, I know that's how I feel you know, at a good musical. And that's why I feel like being a musician, it's always sort of been one of my highest goals is to write, you know, musicals. It is interesting with the songs that it allows you to sort of telescope in and out as well. Like sometimes you can get an insight into that character that would normally, let's say, in a Shakespeare play, be a soliloquy where they'd be talking to themselves in a room, but they can sing deeply about what they want and need and reveal it to the audience without necessarily revealing it to the other characters. Right because they're, they're not just explaining things. They're, they're saying words that we understand as text and perhaps subtext. But even below the subtext, the music is really sort of supplying a whole other piece of information. And a lot of that information just goes directly into our understanding without ha us having to think about it. That's the language of music. It's similar to the way underscoring works in movies 
but I think it's deeper because with with underscoring in movies, it's like you feel like some outside force is supplying that emotional content. Whereas in a musical, it, it seems as if the character himself or herself is actually creating the music in a way. Oh yeah, that that's true. It's shooting out of their being in a way that is just so, you know, visceral. It's coming into us in a way that's some often subconscious as well. So it's talking to us on a whole other plane that we're not, it's like a sixth sense in a way. Right. That we're not even aware of necessarily. Also, it tends that the musical energy often breaks the actors out into a physical energy, offering the number even more lift, which seems organic because it, it gets to a point where they, they're expressing themselves you know, in the dance number as well, right. which is very buoyant for us. Right. And then the other good thing about music is that more than one thing can be going on at a time, which is very hard to do with speaking. You know, if two people are talking, you're not really able to follow either one of them clearly. But in music, uh, you can have characters singing in harmony. They could be singing the same words. They could be singing totally different pieces of material musically. And somehow, even if you're not getting all the words, you are able to track more than one thing at a time. And so that opens up lots of possibilities for dr dramatic juxtaposition and conflict and all sorts of things. We took a play that I had written uh, as sort of a farce that had no music in it at all. It was called Grounded for Life. And the inserting of the songs was not being tacked on in any way. It was like we literally had to gut it down to the studs because the songs end up becoming the main points of the plot and they, they're the high points. So what that meant was get rid of all of the talk about it and get to the heart of what is happening. So that was a big learning moment for me. And ultimately it made the piece far better. It was far more entertaining. The farcical thing made some more sense to me a little bit. You know, certain things, even sitcoms, when they made The Flying Nun or, or The Talking Horse, I couldn't, as a drama or as a comedy, I was like, this is pretty dumb. Like, but in a musical, in some ways, it's okay, right? It's okay to get broad. And, and why is that? Well, musicals deal with larger-than-life feelings, situations, emotions, by their nature. They always say characters have to sing because they they can't express what they need to express in speech. So it's like, you know, raising up to another level of expression. So the fact that in musicals people are singing left and right, it, it just means everything is so heightened. Whereas in a play, things seem tend to be dealt with on a on a smaller, more intimate scale than in musicals. Musicals just, you know, are larger just by their nature. And I have to say, what you brought up before about all of the high points of the story being musicalized, book writers for musicals are the most unsung heroes because they literally have to give over all of the good stuff to the, to the composer lyricists and just supply the connective tissue. But on the other hand, in the larger sense of what a book is, it's the entire architecture of how the story is going to get musicalized. And a book writer is instrumental, no pun intended, in not only helping, but really sort of leading the songwriters in how the arc of the drama is going to go and what is going to get musicalized and, and how we're going to get from moment to moment musically. A lot of musicals these days don't have very much or any speaking, you know, they're through sung. And yet there's a book writer who was usually the lead creative on how things were going to get built. Right, because the team does have to write the book in a way first, even if it's bullets or a storyline that understands the highs and lows. Right, that, that becomes the blueprint to build the musical on top of. Right. So another word for book writer is librettist, and that comes from the world of opera opera composers had librettists that constructed whole librettos and then the composers generally would compose the music to the libretto. I think you carried me on your back in the thing we were writing <laughs> because I was learning the whole way and I enjoyed it. And each time there was a, a new song that came from somewhere, I had nothing 
to do with the musical um, moments as much as the lyrics and the story and the humor. So it was a mystery to me. I, you, we would walk down the street and you would say, quiet, quiet, I'm hearing, I'm hearing the song. And I'd go, I don't hear anything. Like I'm, <laughs> I heard a bus go well, by. And we would race to a piano and you would play it out. It was really fascinating. Right. That's the affliction of being a composer and constantly having tunes buzzing around your head. Uh, sometimes you need to kind of pay attention to them, you know, and not have too many distractions. So I'm, I'm sorry to, to be off putting sometimes when that happened, <laughs> no. but um, you know, there's no there's no controlling that. I'm sorry. Your your contribution to the songs was crucial because, first of all, if I could do it all myself, I would have clearly I was I was missing a, a, an important element. What I was missing was sort of the creative spark of knowing what story I wanted to tell and what comic voice, so to speak, I, I wanted. And, and you have such a individual comic voice, you know, it's that really your own, you've made your whole comic career out of nurturing that voice. So the fact that you had a story and a, a, a comic angle that we could use opened the door to us collaborating on a musical. Writing songs was sort of something that came second nature to me in a way, but knowing where to go with them was the necessary spark that I needed, you know, to, to enter this project, so. And let me take this moment though, to introduce the listener to how it came about. Because I did have this show and it was called Grounded for Life about a 35 year old guy stuck in his childhood bedroom. And it was kind of a farce about being stuck in life. People are stuck in a marriage, they're stuck in a job, those kinds of things. So it presented itself where all characters were coming and going through a toy box. But I did not know anything about musicals. And after you said, do you know anything that needs to be musicalized? I thought, well, this is a file in my cabinet that I'm not doing anymore. I'll send that to you. And I sent essentially the play to you and you took some time. Your wife is also quite a talented singer. She was in the original tour of Cats, I believe, where maybe the two of you met at that time. That's where we met, yep. And she she knew you from earlier in her career uh, in L.A. when you were doing stand-up in L.A. Yeah, when, when we got together, she introduced me to you, and the rest is history. It is history, but the funny thing to me was, so now I've mailed this thing off, and I've, I've just cleaned my hands of it, and you kind of looked at the opening read the first few scenes, you made a prologue, kind of scavenging a bit of the dialogue and then making it scannable so that it would sing, and you served it as, as sort of the uh, main voice of the male character, and she sang the part of the mom. And when it came back to me, it just sort of cracked me up. I go, it kind of sounds like a musical. It was like one of those remodeling TV shows where they take the family away and then they do this beautiful remodel and then they move the bus away and they go, oh my God, that's our really our house. So I, I want to play a little bit of that song right here, which was Grounded for Life prologue. But what I loved about it was that you did something that I hadn't thought of, which is you set the stage for the show. So in this, you don't have to know anything. You've opened the program and you see the title. It's called Grounded for Life. So now the characters begin to tell you why the guy's grounded, who the other characters are. It's, it really was a fascinating idea to have a prologue that sort of teed up all the parts so that as you started seeing people coming in and introducing themselves, you were catching up quickly about what happened in the past. That's a classic move for musicals to take the opening number to introduce the, all of the characters basically and they all sort of tell you where they're at in the story right from the get-go before we actually see things happening in real time. Here now is the prologue from Grounded for Life. I threw a snowball at a school bus. The driver swerved into a ditch. Needless to say, I got in trouble. My mother freaked and here's the hit she said. grounded before for a month maybe more but it never really got me upset but she said this time it's war and i'm barring the door and then i heard those words i'll never forget you're grounded 
basic facts. Mitchell got the max. I was there, but I didn't view it. Hard to fathom, he'd even do it. Though no one confessed, Mitch is under house arrest. Mitch and I were going steady on that fateful day. It makes me sad to Snowball hit the windshield. Ah. You'll have plenty of time to think now, mister. Driver lost control and how? You are going to be the death of me. They barely missed old Hornby's cow. Father Barry of God! The bus rolled wide, the children cried. It's really lucky no one died. Now get inside! Oh, man. that bad in no way i get three meals a day and i don't have to trade my ass for a smoke i'll spend my last years on earth in my own living worth and i'll only get released when i croak grounded for life forever trapped in 110 square feet my future's been impounded you're grounded for so much fun to hear that again. I can't wait to get it on stage. We had one stage reading uh, in New York at the York Theater as a part of their program of looking at uh, musicals for stage readings. And we had this unbelievable cast because you had accompanied folks when they were auditioning or you played with them in shows. So would you mind sharing some of the names of the folks who who sang that yeah, number? Uh, the, the entire cast on that album were, um, you know, Broadway actors with, you know, Broadway credits that were friends of mine or had worked on shows with me. So we were very lucky to get them. Um, so Mitch was played by Garth Kravitz. Uh, he was the lead character there. And then the other voices are Michael Keeloon, Heather Jane Rolfe, Maxine Linehan, Jennifer Bowles, and Aaron Ramey. They were so gracious so that process was really fun for me too just to be watching uh them sing those demos in your hell's kitchen apartment up there right in my bedroom <laughs> that's what you do in new york city when you live in an apartment you're recording in your bedroom yes well at least you're a success if you've got a bedroom yeah right instead of just uh that studio living room at least it's in the theater district I have a bedroom in the theater district. Yeah, so oftentimes when you were substituting as a conductor or associate conducting, you would just walk down the street and boom, you're at work. And then you'd walk home afterwards. Yeah, that was pretty convenient, living in Hell's Kitchen like that, a couple blocks from the theater. Sometimes I'd even record uh, in between shows on a two-show day. We'd go, you know, grab somebody and record a song in between. Yeah, and I, I recall there were times that you played for one show you might be an accompanist on a musical and then come back and you might be doing a different show that same night as am i delusional about that or were there times that you were playing two different programs if i was a regular on a show that i was pretty much sticking to that show but when i was uh, in between regular gigs and i was subbing i would often play one show for a matinee and a different show that evening and sometimes have a rehearsal in between maybe for a third show so you never know you got you do what you got to do to make a living <laughs> i want to talk about life in the pit that's where as a conductor 
you're the one person in a position to see the musicians below and the action above. You introduced me to the pit once at a matinee of Cinderella. And you said, hey, would you like to sit in the pit, which I've never done. I don't play music. I don't have a reason to be down there. But I always thought, what the, what is the orchestra doing down there? And so I was like, okay, I'll go. And it was like getting into a submarine with a dozen people. It's pretty tight quarters. And then I didn't realize when I was down there, I wasn't going to see the show. I didn't realize in any way that I was just going to hear stomping above me and things that were happening. And I could see you conducting the, and that was really interesting to me. And then I would see musicians who would be on a down thing where they didn't have to play and they would be reading a book or doing a crossword puzzle. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it was amazing. But the woman next to me, and I don't know who it was, but she played several instruments, which included the oboe and the English horn. And she was like, it was like a military operation. She would finish a song. She would take the instrument apart. She would clean it. She would put it back together like it was a rifle. And then she was ready the, on the next note she had to play. And it was exactly, um, it was amazing to me. That was like startling to me, but I could not tell you who was in that show or what was happening. If the audience laughed, I didn't know what they were laughing at. Right. I mean, it used to be the pits were more wide open before microphones and, and amplified music. Um, you'd have wide open pits that were shallower and the, the musicians actually had a little bit more of a connection to what was going on on stage, you know, phys in feeling like you're in the same physical space. Nowadays, the pits are so buried, they want to control the sound more. And often they're not even in the pit, they're backstage somewhere in a room. So the musicians really don't have any more physical connection to what's going on on stage and they're at the mercy of the conductor to hold things together you know they're they're following the conductor and the conductor is basically accompanying what's going on on stage so, so conductor is sort of a traffic cop relaying necessary information so that everyone can stay together it was always very fun and thrilling to conduct to be in that position i'm sort of in a way the, the point person for the entire performance within sight of the audience i'm watching the show i'm i'm you know the musicians are all watching me and sort of nothing can happen until i give a downbeat but also i always felt like i was the audience's tour guide to the show in a way like i was i was taking them through this journey and creating the emotional life that they were going to experience i mean obviously the actors are doing <laughs> a huge part of that i am setting the tone for the entire show with with the musical life and as we said the music is sort of the window into the soul in a way so i always felt like i was very much in control of that the baton feels like it's a little bit of a magic wand when you're watching a conductor that there's a certain symphonic sorcery that when they indicate or they want a soloist to play that that they're sort of conjuring it up but it really is you keeping track of the pace and the tone and the timber yeah it's a lot more than just the baton i mean the baton's a nice sort of uh, prop that not everyone uses a baton but i like to use it because the tip of the baton has a precision that your hands and fingers don't and it can also be, uh, because it's got length there's sort of like leverage there to to be very small or very big but it's a lot more than just the baton it's your whole body your facial expression the way you move and carry your body you know it, it, that all of that expresses to the musicians and the actors conveys what you're trying to get get out of them and so they react to what they see uh, in their performance i'm also fascinated by the fact that when you do national tours you told me that Oftentimes you'll come to a town and you'll have your principal players, you'll have your accompanist or you'll have a bass player or a drummer or something, but then you will be introduced to a whole slew of new musicians each in each city. A whole level of stress that you've never felt before until you arrive on a Tuesday morning in a town and you know you're doing a show that night for 3,000 people and these players have never played this score before together and you don't know what you're going to get. You know, I, you start at, I don't know, eight or nine in the morning, you rehearse for four or five hours, a show that runs nearly three hours. So there's not a lot of time to go back and fix things. And you, you play through it and cross your fingers. And sometimes you're lucky. 
certain cities, you're always lucky, you know, when, when there are really, really good musicians there. I have to say, everywhere I've played, there are good musicians. I'm not, I, I don't want to, you know, belittle any place. <laughs> but, you know, obviously there are some places where people are not, there's not a large pool of people making their living playing music. They're, 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 they might be teaching music, they might be running a music shop, or they may have completely other jobs doing normal things, so to speak, and then playing music because they love it and they're good at it. Sometimes it's rough, and um, some shows are really complicated and difficult to get up to speed you know, with, with players that have never played it before. Like a show like The Producers, which needs to be a well-oiled machine for that comedy to play, and everything is quick. You know, the tempos are quick. The music has to be tailored to all of the jokes in a way that hits them, you know? That, so there's no dead air. Dead air is, is death for comedy, you know that. They constructed, well, you know, Mel Brooks wrote this score for uh, the producers, but he's not really a musician, right? So it was Glenn Kelly who was the arranger and Susan Stroman, the director and choreographer, they knew what they wanted out of the music. And so they constructed the score with these nested vamps and if you don't know what a vamp is, it's a repeating section of music that repeats until uh, the conductor cues out of it, right? So anytime there was speaking during a song and there would be a punchline, they needed the music to come in immediately after the punchline. But the punchline times out differently because they're talking. So they had these vamps where sometimes they would start out as at four bars and you like you repeat four bars over and over again and then you get down to two bars then sometimes it was one bar and even like one beat so that as soon as that punchline hit you're queuing out into the next thing so that the music is kicking and the joke lands and if you don't do it that way like if you if the if the punchline finishes and you still have another bar of music to go before the the kicked music you're dead there's this three there's three beats of dead air there but it was harrowing to try to time it especially with new you know musicians who had never played it before so that that was stressful that was a stressful show <laughs> it, it must have been exhilarating when you would get to a town and see a familiar face like if you saw a musician you're like oh good i had this guy on sunset boulevard now i have him on that right because some of these people are from a talent pool that stay in that city from the local symphony right or you know not even the symphony because symphony players are first of all they they do one thing well classical music but they don't often do jazz or pop type music as well and then also they're busy playing their symphonies so they're not available to do a whole week or two weeks or three weeks run of a show there are usually freelance musicians in town that play shows jazz gigs they get picked up for ensembles when like headliners come to town and they need extra musicians and they usually teach too because it's hard to make a living just as a freelance musician or they write music or they record music or they you know they do a lot of different things like i like i do to make ends meet yeah that list of credits at the top that i talked about these are all very specific things when you're arranging something or when you're orchestrating something i think most people just are not aware what a utility player you have to be to make a living in the music business. Right. Obviously, if you're the best at one thing, you'll become a star at doing that one thing. Even the best people in musical theater, uh, the, the best people at doing one thing, usually do a lot of other things too. Nowadays, if you're an onstage performer, you've got to be an actor, singer, dancer, at least all three of those in, in order to be up there in a, in a Broadway musical because the days when you had a singing ensemble and a dancing ensemble and then the principal actors and they were all separate people, those days are over. The casts have gotten much more tight and, and overlapping disciplines and they, everybody's got to do at least you know some of everything. Yeah, and you have to be your own IT department. Even these folks that are auditioning for things, they have to shoot themselves, they have to put themselves on camera and submit it, the audition. Like they have to be able to edit. They have to be, they have to be their own publicist with the Instagram and like there's a high demand for a skill set to stay in this game. Right. So musically, you've got people that play for Broadway shows usually are also writers, arrangers, teachers, play lots of different styles. They play many different instruments in, in many cases, a, a wide, broad world of things you need to do.
an unusual just switcheroo here. Weren't you playing Music Man in D.C. when there was an opportunity to be involved in a attempt at a Guinness Book World Records of some kind? Tell me about what that was. Yes. So, uh, you know, the Music Man has the song 76 Trombones. And so our publicist, this was at Arena Stage in 2012, our publicist there decided he wanted to break the Guinness Book of World Records record for the largest trombone orchestra to play at one time. And he researched it, and I think the record had been 100-something. So why there's a record of that, who knows. But um, he decided he wanted to recruit using the uh, music schools, you know, just anyone who plays trombone in the D.C. area. And he put the word out, and we got over 500 submissions of people that wanted to participate. So I arranged 76 trombones for basically seven different trombone parts from bass trombone all the way up to soprano trombone. I didn't even know there was a soprano trombone, but evidently there is. And so seven different parts, and I put them out on the internet on a site where people could download the part that they wanted to learn. They decided they were going to have this take place because I, I t he was talking about doing it indoors. And I'm like, you don't want 500 trombones indoors. <laughs> that's going to be, that's going to blow everyone's ear, eardrums out. He decided, he, he arranged for us to do it on, on the field at a Washington Nationals game. In front of a live audience, 500 trombones would take up like the entire warning track. And so we're all set to do it. And lo and behold, the day arrives, it's a torrential downpour. So... And it's, it's like it's like a hurricane is hitting Washington. It, it was awful. Originally, we were going to have everyone show up and check in at a tent outside. So we had to do that underneath. And then um, they didn't want us on the field because of the wet because of the wet conditions. It would destroy the field. So they they wanted to keep us on the warning track. And finally, the rain subsided enough. There was like a break in the forecast, like five minutes. They said they hurried us out onto the field, and they we had to play for at least. I think it was five minutes for it to count in the record book because Guinness said, no, you got, you got to do it for five minutes straight. Well, the arrangement was only like a minute and 30 seconds. So we had to play it three times in a row. <laughs> and they hurried us out on the field for this one five-minute break where it was going to stop raining. Somehow we managed to do it. We, we didn't quite have as many people as we originally, you know, a lot of people didn't show up because of the weather, but I think, I think we had nearly 400 we still broke the record. Yeah, by handily by by 300 people. Yeah, yeah. If you go out on YouTube, you can actually find it if you search 7600 trombones or something like that or you know, trombones nationals park and it was really hard to keep it together because here we are in a stadium where not everyone can hear each other. There were like three different endings. <laughs> Three different factions were ending at different times. It was really, really difficult, but it was crazy. But isn't it really the Harold Hill think system that got them all through it anyway, which was what he was teaching in The Music Man was just think, boys, think. Yeah, right. It may have sounded marginally better than that band at the end of The Music Man where, the, where they're playing just by thinking. Well, that reminds me of this the story of when um, I was a, maybe seven years old um, taking piano lessons, my, my teacher asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, a conductor. And she said, oh, wonderful, I can see you in front of the orchestra. And I said, no, a train conductor, <laughs> because my father was a big train buff, and I grew up on the Long Island Railroad, basically, learning all the stops. I really thought I wanted to be a train conductor. So, And then the upshot is I became an actual music conductor, so it worked out. <laughs> it's great. It's a great thing to fall back on, isn't yeah. it? When, yeah. you, when the train life falls through. Exactly. Now, do you remember when you composed your first song as a composer that you were, did you write a song with music or lyrics or? Yeah, that's interesting. When I was in fourth grade, I was already playing piano and my the music teacher in public elementary school was having me come up and play things for the class, kind of show off a little bit. I was getting a taste of that performance, you know, rush. Uh, a few of the kids in that class and I sort of created a little, not band, but like singing group. Um, there were like five or six of us, and we called ourselves the Ace of Spades. And I actually wrote three or four of my you know, very first songs, lyrics and all. They were juvenile. One was called The Train, because I was into trains. One was called Lunchtime, 
And I actually ended up using lunchtime decades later. I was a um, composer and musician for a, a children's television show in Pittsburgh in the late 80s called Let's Read a Story. So I wrote a lot of songs and I wrote a, a lot of underscores for story reads for that show. And I was on camera. I was kind of like the Paul Schaefer of the under five set, you know, <laughs> on camera, and, but mostly there for my musical skills. One of the songs that we did on that show was Lunchtime. And I, I re reworked the lyrics a little bit. But it was the same tune, the same song, basically, that I remembered from when I wrote it in fourth grade. That group, the Ace of Spades, actually performed at our elementary school. We did, we did the three songs for the class assembly. And I still remember to this day, the principal, after, after we finished, the principal came over. He was so impressed. He picked me up onto the piano stool so people could see me better. Like I said, isn't this remarkable? This young boy has written these songs. And, it was me and a drummer. I was playing. I was playing piano. Well, that's an illustrious start to a career, though. To be to be able to stand on the piano bench and take <laughs> yeah. the bow. Right. It was all downhill from there. That was the highlight of my writing career. <laughs> yes. I don't know if they'll be able to find lunchtime, but I did Google and find "Let's Read a Story," which was from KDKA TV in Pittsburgh. That's right. And so there are clips of you out there behind the keyboard singing and. Uh, interacting with the other players on the show. Indeed, yeah. You're also a big fan of anagrams, and you are the author of the Broadway musical Anagrammy. Is that how you pronounce the name of the book? Broadway musical Anagrammy, yes. I'm curious what your fascination is with anagrams. You are really an anagram buff. Well, I went through a phase. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny because um, I just saw the new musical Kimberly Akimbo, uh, um, Janine Tesori and um, David Lindsay Abair's new musical on Broadway. And anagrams play very heavily in, in the plot of that show. And it's funny because I used to, for a hobby, I used to try to take people's names and figure out anagrams of them. And when I was on the tour of Chess, which was my first Broadway tour of the show Chess, this was 1989 or 1990, Janine Tesori, who wrote Kimberly Akimbo, was a fellow keyboard player on that tour with me. Uh, we, we were two keyboard players on the same tour. And I, I'm sure I did her anagrams, you know, of her name. She, was, she used to be Janine Levinson because she was married to a guy named Keith Levinson. And actually, the, both of them were out on that tour. It's funny because Kimberly Akimbo, a character, does an, people's anagrams of their names. And this is a show that Janine Tesori wrote. So I almost feel like I... It inspired her. <laughs> well, and one of the fun things about an anagram is that not just are you jumbling it up, but that it somehow makes some additional sense in the new form. Right. Well, like, for instance, one of my favorite musical theater anagrams is uh, an anagram of Les Miserables, Aimless Rebels. So, you know, when you come out with something that resonates with what the original is, that is what makes anagrams rewarding. But, you know, sometimes you don't. Are you as enamored by uh, palindromes as you are anagrams? You know, I, I admire palindromes. I've never tried to, you know, write one, but I know a few people that actually do uh, write them, and they're smarter than I am. <laughs> so, and some people do anagrams in their head, uh, you know, figure, figure them out in their head. I'm, I, I can't do that either. I mean, once I got the computer uh, involved, it became a lot easier, but, I've, I've, you know, I've sort of... Um, gotten through that habit. I'm, I'm not uh, so much into it anymore, but I, I appreciate a, a good anagram now. And Talk about, in general, when you enter in to work with the Boston Pops, you have to kind of take the temperature of everybody going into it, don't you? Yeah. Um, you know, theater is one of the more collaborative art forms. No one can do everything by themselves. So you're always bouncing ideas off of other people, and that's how good ideas grow how inspiration sort of cross-pollinates. You talk about what the goal is. Everyone's got different ideas about how to get there. And I'm always impressed when uh, writers like Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, you know, write every, he writes the book, the lyrics, the music, but he's got other people to bounce ideas off of. You know, he's got a music director that I'm sure is very helpful with music. So, and a director, you know, f as far as um, where the book wants to go. So uh, he's not just writing in, in his ivory tower. 
But it's pretty impressive that, you know, when one person can do all that. As far as music and lyrics go, I kind of find that the people that do music and lyrics by, on, the, on their own feel like they tend to tap into a more, cle more cleverness. I mean, Stephen Sondheim, Stephen Schwartz, Jason Robert Brown, Frank Lesser, Cole Porter, you know, these are all people that wrote both music and lyrics their entire careers. And they are generally thought of as the most uh, clever songwriters in the theater. You know, not to take anything away from people that collaborate. There's something about being able to sort of keep tabs in, your, in one mind of both where the music and lyrics are going to that when you put them together in a way that is super, super impressively clever. I, I'm, I really admire that. I mean, I like to write lyrics, but I can't really call myself a lyricist. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely collaborated on our lyrics with you. Right. Well, let, let me talk about one of the songs that we did. We were able to showcase and there was a Dramatist Guild conference and they were selecting songs to showcase. And one of the songs from Ground of Her Life, which I thought was a particularly clever one, was our Better Option song. Right. And just to sort of tee it up, because I think maybe we should play a little bit of this one, because there's a something cute and a kind of a different point of view in it. When I wrote the original play, I did not represent a figure of death in it. It wasn't that way. But this musical allowed us to have the specter of death come to visit the guy in his room. And so we wrote this song, which was called Better Option, but in the longer version, it's Death's a Better Option for You. And it's really super fun. I think it was your suggestion that we stay away from making it this big, dark, dour thing and that we approach it more like a vaudeville show vaudeville piece yeah. yeah a little bit more of a t soft shoe and a and a combo with a kind of a new yorky salesman trying to say come on try it you're gonna like death you've been in your room all this time and i can't remember who the singer was at the dramatist guild blake hammond he did a really nice job at it and this the one i'm gonna play though comes from one we recorded that had aaron aaron ramey Aaron Ramey singing the part of death. He infused so much personality into it. Yeah, he did a fantastic job on this. And, and it was important not to call the song Death's a Better Option because it gives away the joke. Right. So it was called Better Option. And I'm only, I guess, giving the context since we're leapfrogging a great deal of the play. But the, uh, the main character, Mitch, is choking on a piece of bacon in this scene where he ends up going down to the ground and this may be his last moment alive in his bedroom as the smoke is filling the room and death comes to collect him and and in a way death knows this guy's not going anywhere until he takes him because he's never left the room but i thought it might be fun to share uh, a little bit of better option yeah a better option for you I've arrived to guide your intervention it's clear to me you haven't got a clue your resume's a snoozer let's face it you're a loser that's a better option for you death it's so spectacular it's a great good glorious way to go When life has got no meaning, I'll tell you how I'm leaning. I recommend the lovely shade of blue. That's a better option for you. Don't waste your time applying for an extension. My motto's not confusing to construe. You sat there on your keister for 20 years next Easter. That's a better option for you. Death, it's quite luxurious. It's much more lively than you would assume. Death, 
is your tune. By the way, that I forget to mention, there really is no other avenue. You wasted your existence, I offer my assistance. Listen to my deathly motley crew. That's a better option. It sure beats pet adoption. That's a better option for you. You know it really is. <laughs> Aaron did a fantastic job, and I love the way he ended it with such personality. He ad-libbed that... Uh, it really is at the end. <laughs> that was great. Which from a comic standpoint, I will say anybody who's auditioning for things or if you keep your character alive and you carry the scene out with a line or a notion or a button that they haven't heard, that is the dream for a director. You know, not that you're trying to, to rewrite the ending of something, but just the notion that you stay in character and that you're able to make it even more... Uh, interesting has always been a winning thing to me in comic auditions well if you were a uh, inspiring a young conductor that let's say musical conductor rather than a trained conductor it was there anything that for you was the tipping point where you decided that that's the kind of leadership you wanted in the music business to be in that position I don't really remember how I got started in conducting other than that, I've always been a bossy person <laughs> um, and sort of wanted things my way. And But I think a lot of it, too, is that I feel like I have certain limitations as a pianist. I mean, I studied classical piano. I knew I was never going to be a concert soloist. My musical mind was more advanced than my fingers were able to do. And I think that naturally led me toward conducting because with conducting, you can help form those musical ideas using other players. But, but use your own musical interpretations. Well, that's one thing. The other, the other thing is that early in my life, I, my ambition was really to be Billy Joel rather than, why I was cl studying classical music wanting to be Billy Joel is beyond me, but <laughs> I was supposed to go to school, so I went to school, and in school you study classical music. You know? uh, so luckily I found musical theater because that is sort of a middle ground between rock and classical that spans the gamut. I mean, because musical theater includes a little bit of classical here and there and a little bit of rock here and there, but a lot of jazz and, and, and just many different styles of music in between. So it's a, it was a nice variety and it was also a good um, way to ply my craft without being famous and, and still make a decent living. I came to really love how music contributes to telling stories. Music in and of, it, of itself is much more abstract. You know, if, if you listen to a, a classical piece, you may hear dramatic things in there, but um, unless there are words involved, you're only just using your imagination or guessing what the uh, composer was after. But when you marry music to a dramatic story and words all all together, th there's just something something that gets created that's greater than the sum of those parts, and that's always you know really been transporting for me. Have you ever seen the clips where there was an orchestra outdoors on the street? And there was a baton <laughs> that was sitting on a music stand with a sign that said, conduct us. Uh, <laughs> You'll love this. Go, you, you, I don't go think find I've this. seen this, yeah. Okay, well, what, what's great is how people tiptoe up to it and they go, really? Are you kidding? You know, whatever. And they'll pick the baton up and when they bring it down, boom, everybody starts. Like, and, and there's a few people who kind of do it a little bit and they get nervous and they set it down and walk away and the band just stops, right? And there's other people who get in it and they're waving it and they're pointing at specific people and they're doing it. And it is hilarious. It's like, you know, Mickey Mouse with the, the wand in Fantasia. But I appreciate you sharing your musical wisdom and kind of giving us a little tour behind the scenes and into the pit and all those places. Sure. Um, you've always been an inspiration to me. Well, we had a lot of fun writing Grounded for Life, I have to say, over over many years of gestation for that piece. <laughs> Musicals don't write themselves quickly, I've discovered. No, especially when you don't live in the same city and one of you is on tour. Well, both of us are on tour, different tours, you know. Tour, but you were but that was quite fun, though. There were times in Seattle where I was doing a show and you were doing a show when I was in Des Moines in one smaller theater and you were in the bigger theater of the same group so that was really super fun and i will say that 
if there's a blessing in my life, it's having seen so much of the country by being in this business, by being able to try interesting food and go to interesting museums. Oh, absolutely. It's really, really one of the, the joys of this is to just see so much of the country and what it has to offer. Right. And as stressful as it always was working with local musicians in, in markets around the country, it, it was also a, a great gift to be able to work with that many different musicians, probably over a thousand uh, musicians in the country that I've worked with. Well, those are folks that want to know more about Larry's music. Here's some samples. There are other songs buried in the website from Grounded for Life, if you're curious about that. It's under his formal name, which is lawrencegoldbergmusic.com. And you have a great deal of talent, my friend. And I promise we will get Grounded for Life you know, out of its bedroom and onto the stage one of these days. <laughs> That'll be fun. Thank you, Pat. Great being here. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare